Welcome to Humans in Public Health. I'm Megan Hall. In the past few years, the field of public health has become more visible than ever before, but it's always played a crucial role in our daily lives. Each month, we talk to a person who makes this work possible. Today, Dr. Craig Spencer. Craig is an epidemiologist who's participated in health interventions all over the world. But you might have heard his name for another reason. In 2014, he became the first person in New York City to test positive for Ebola. He sat down with me recently to talk about that experience and how it informed his perspective as an ER doc in New York City during the pandemic. Craig says it all started when he got a phone call from a friend. And he was working with Doctors Without Borders at that point. And he called me and said, hey, I think I'm going to go to Guinea. And he told me about what they had heard about an Ebola outbreak that had been confirmed at the end of the month in uh, March 2014. And I remember thinking, hmm, that sounds crazy. That sounds scary. Um, I think I'd be able to do that. And after seeing what was happening in West Africa, in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, um, recognizing that there wasn't nearly enough um, providers, nearly enough support to help end the outbreak, um, I ultimately decided that summer to, to sign up and to go to West Africa. The extent of the crisis hit him at the airport. We got on the plane and walked by an empty first-class cabin and walked into a nearly completely empty cabin at the back of the plane. Getting on the plane and seeing almost no one, an empty plane, made it real um, for the first time, just how bad this was. No one was traveling there, and the planes coming back you know, were full of people that were trying to get out. In Guinea, the treatment center had grown from a few dozen beds to about 100. Craig was one of only three doctors. And I remember my first day going in, putting on the personal protective equipment, taking care of patients that you know had just been admitted and were at their worst and, numerically speaking, likely wouldn't survive um, the next couple of days. Some of the patients did survive, but the odds were against them. Yeah, people might not think about it as much now because there are some Ebola vaccines that are really great and there are some actually pretty good treatments. When I showed up at the end of 2014, there wasn't all that much that we could offer in terms of specific targeted care. What we had was a lot of just like basic supportive care. So IV fluid, if we could safely put in an IV, um, we couldn't check any labs. We couldn't check kidney function. We couldn't check to see if you're anemic. We could check to see if maybe you had malaria, which was important because we knew that malaria and Ebola together increased your risk of dying. And we could give medications, things to treat symptoms like nausea or antibiotics if we were worried about a different super infection. But our toolbox was pretty small, which meant that untreated, Ebola has a fatality rate of probably somewhere between 70 and 80%. Treated in the Ebola treatment center where I was working, maybe we could drive that down to 60 or 50 or 40%. And so statistically, the likelihood if you came into the treatment center that you were going to die was still worse than just a random coin flip, but it was better than if you were treated or not giving any treatment at all in the community. Craig had lots of experience working internationally, but this time felt different. Yeah, I'd worked in a lot of challenging environments before, either taking care of patients or being in places like on the border of Congo and 
you know, seeing militias and seeing gunfire and, you know, being part of that in the midst of a public health crisis. But there's something different that happens when that crisis is happening inside you, as well as kind of all around you. Now, we didn't really show it, but everyone that was part of the response was worried every single day if that was the day that they were exposed. We all knew that it took one virion, so like one infectious particle, to give you Ebola. Up, oh, did you accidentally shake somebody's hand? Or was your glove on all the way? Or, oh my gosh, did you get a rip in your glove when you were taking care of that patient? Maybe you can't see it. Maybe it's really small. And I think it's really hard to convey just how psychologically unraveling and upsetting it can be to have that in your mind every minute of every single day. After six weeks in Guinea, Craig came back to New York City. His return to home was much tougher than he expected. You know, it's impossible to go from an environment where all you see is incredible and, and quite horrible illness and death on a daily basis to New York City, where there's hustle and bustle and people are having fun. And I went out to a dinner, I think the night or two after I got back, and things were just normal. And to see that dichotomy in such a short period of time was tough and was really, really sad. He was also concerned that he had Ebola. Every little sniffle or ache put him on high alert. But he knew that he wasn't contagious unless he had a fever. So he took his temperature twice a day. One morning, something felt especially off. I woke up and was breathing a little bit faster, took my temperature. It was at the, the limit for when I was supposed to call. He went to the hospital and took a test for Ebola. It came back positive. How did you feel when you got that positive result? Having spent so long a time fearing something and having it so present and worrying about it coming to actuality, there is this like very weird, strange and brief moment where you're, I don't want to say at peace, but there is some peace and not worrying about the thing that you've been worrying about. But I remember feeling some sense of just like paradoxical peace. After that, uh, you know, brief moment of peace, did you think that you were going to die? I knew the chances weren't great, but I also knew that by virtue of everything that I had been privileged to have, um, my chances were way better than anyone that I had taken care of. And that in itself was also both comforting and discomforting at the same time. Outside the hospital, Craig was all over the news. Media outlets tracked every place he went before he tested positive. Politicians attacked him. Luckily, Craig had no idea any of this was happening. They had put a TV in the room that I was staying, which was meant as an Ebola isolation ward at the hospital, but they had not got to the point of actually plugging it in. It turns out that it was you know, a beautiful thing because I could focus on what was happening within my own four walls as opposed to what was happening on the outside. But you know, ultimately, I did become aware it impacted my family and impacted my, uh, my now wife. When did you know that you were going to make it when you, when you had Ebola? My physician required that I ride a Nordic track bike every single day for 15 minutes, which I had no desire to do. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to do any exercise. And once I was able to do that and not grumble the whole time, I think that I had a pretty good idea that things were trending in the right direction. 
And after surviving Ebola, I think if it were me, I'd say, all right, I'm, I'm done uh, treating infectious diseases. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you decide to run back into it? Yeah, well, I, you know, and with COVID, I found myself on the front line. I didn't have to run to it. It came to me. But a lot of the issues that made Ebola in West Africa so bad weren't fixed either there or in other places. Like infectious diseases often happen in places where there aren't enough providers, there's not enough people, where the public health infrastructure isn't strong. And so as someone who has worked clinically in scary places, has done public health work, you know, I, I look at a lot of these and think, if people like me aren't going to respond, that have the skills, have the experience, and have the training, then, then who is? And, and what are we going to do? Uh, are we just going to wring our hands and hope for the best that these things end? Or can we find other folks to jump in and respond and try to give people access to better care? Would we have been better prepared for COVID if we responded to Ebola in a different way? One thousand percent, absolutely. The international community was incredibly slow to respond in West Africa. It involved mobilizing money and financial resources from governments and from kind of big international players like the WHO. Here in the US, even at local levels, for many of us, we weren't concerned because it didn't seem to directly impact us. And because of that, we didn't take the actions that would have helped then and that would have made us better prepared for COVID. If you look at the overwhelming majority of the best medical centers, the best public health schools in the U.S., the overwhelming majority made it really, really, really difficult for their providers, for their nurses, their doctors, their public health folks to contribute in West Africa. And so the problem with that was that we had very, very few providers that had any experience working in the midst of a really scary, horrible disease that seemingly comes out of nowhere and then just kind of overtakes everything around us. There was too few people that had that on the ground experience that could say on day one, this is what we need to do. The example that I give often is that I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I have been doing this for you know, 14, 15 years and I'm pretty good at putting in IVs, putting in intravenous lines to start medication, to give people fluid. When I went to West Africa, the first patient that I tried to put an IV on, I missed completely. And I didn't miss because I'm bad at it. I was just scared that if I missed and poked myself, I'd get a bullet and I'd die. And I remember seeing that in the ICU nurse who took care of me and started an IV on me in New York an ICU nurse that had been doing this for decades could find a vein on an orange. You know, she was incredible. And she missed on me twice and hit a nerve. So when COVID came to New York City, Craig was more prepared than a lot of his colleagues, but not entirely. As soon as we had a confirmed case, things changed and people got a lot more uncomfortable. I could see the worry on my friends' faces. Um, I was worried just as everyone else. But again, I had seen... I'd seen this in West Africa. I'd, I'd gone through this. Like I knew kind of what to expect and knew that it was going to be tough and it was going to be a hard couple of months and it was going to be sad and we were going to see people die and it was going to be tough on my colleagues. And sometime around middle of March, we saw a transition 
and it was a transition from trying to find that one patient in your emergency department that had COVID to a week later trying to find the one person in your emergency department that didn't have COVID. Um, it was a tsunami, and by the third and last week of March, every single person that we saw had COVID, every single person. The overwhelming majority of them were really, really sick, like very, very sick, sick in a way that I hadn't seen since I had, was working in West Africa. I remember going into work knowing that in a few days it was going to impact the providers as well. Because again, most providers before 2020, we didn't wear N95s. Maybe once a year you'd put it on for your fit test at the hospital to prove that you knew how to put it on. But for the overwhelming majority of us, we didn't. And they didn't have that experience like many of the people that worked in West Africa that were an N95 many times a day, all day, and knew that their life depended on wearing it well. And so I knew that after we started seeing patients come in with COVID, we were going to start seeing staff. And sure enough, within a week, we lost a lot of our staff, especially a lot of our nurses. And so we saw a dramatic, dramatic spread of COVID um, amongst the nursing staff, which whittled down the number of folks that were available to come in for a shift every single day, even as the number of patients continued to climb. I think I was also comforted by the false idea that it couldn't happen here, right? We were more prepared. We had more providers. We had more all money, the things. More money, more resources, More money, more technology. resources. All of these things that were lacking for after decades of underinvestment or other issues in places like West Africa where I'd worked or places in Southeast Asia. Like I was at one of the best hospitals in the world, of course, this couldn't happen here, right? And I think a lot of that false comfort very quickly faded away. It was tough. Um, I saw on many days more people die in one of the best hospitals in the world than I did in West Africa during the Ebola outbreak. Looking forward, what do you think we need to do differently? How do we need to prepare? What's in our future when it comes to pandemics? There's things that we've done that have been astronomical on a public health scale over the past three years. But there's still a lot of folks who worry that the answer to the question, are we more prepared now because of COVID, feel like the answer might be no. Why? Well, think about what you hear around us. We have a movement against vaccination, not just for COVID, but for vaccines more broadly. We're seeing outbreaks of things like measles. We're seeing in places like Florida where, you know, not only mask mandates, but really basically any public health mandate is being outlawed. You have public health powers under attack in over three dozen states where compared to 2019, many, many, many places, the majority of states in this country, public health has fewer powers now than it did before the pandemic. And so... I want to be both an optimist, but also a realist. There are a lot of folks, should another pandemic hit tomorrow, that will listen to and abide by public health advice. And there are a lot of folks that absolutely won't because of what they feel like has happened over the past couple of years, how they feel like their trust and authority has withered away. I can't imagine many other times when the CDC has been so vilified and, and mistrusted. Um, despite the wor incredible work that it does every single day. So what do we do? 
we need to be better communicators. We need to be transparent, but we also need to be bold. And we need to find ways to rebuild trust in public health in this country and globally, because we are at a point at which that trust is incredibly low. And the threat is not just in what happens in the next pandemic, when it comes, whether it's a year from now, five years from now, or 10, it comes from all those other things. Will people follow other public health guidance that's given around things like cessation of tobacco products or all these other things that we hear about on a daily basis that have a dramatic impact on our life? You know, the quality of our water, quality of the air we breathe, ventilation in buildings, et cetera. All these things are critically important, but risk being wrapped up in this backlash to public health that we're seeing for some understandable, but from some also manufactured reasons over the past couple of years. You probably had a lot of opportunity to sort of process the past three years, process your experiences with Ebola. What are sort of the conclusions that you come to after rehashing this over and over? The thing that I keep coming back to is that we often perceive the threats, the challenges in public health as novel and unique. And we look around us for the answers as opposed to recognizing that most of the threats we face today are rooted in previous problems, in history, have precedent. And just like our inability to effectively mount a strong and quick response to COVID, I think was impacted by our unwillingness to be involved in other previous epidemics and outbreaks, uh, such as Ebola. I think that there are other things that we can look through with a historical lens that help us better understand what we're doing in public health. So what I'm trying to get the public health community to be more cognizant of is that there's a lot that lies in our history that we're not aware of. And we've built a field where we don't necessarily need to be aware of it to take action. If we want to rebuild our trust, we need to own up to our failures, of which there are many. We need to stop making it sound like there are simple solutions to very complex problems. For example, when people of color were hesitant about taking the COVID-19 vaccine, Craig says a lot of public health officials blame the legacy of the Tuskegee experiment. That's where hundreds of Black men were exposed to syphilis and left untreated by medical professionals. Tuskegee is monumental and absolutely was catastrophic for the public health community. Um, but it's more than just that. It's all of that. It's everything that existed before Tuskegee that exists after Tuskegee. It's all the other injustices. It's not just one historical event that has created these these conditions, either here or abroad. It's the whole collection of them. And I think until we think about them, process them, and incorporate them into our actual public health planning now, we'll continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. Well, Dr. Craig Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for having me here and including me in part of this discussion. Craig Spencer is an emergency medicine physician and an associate professor of the practice of health services policy and practice at Brown University School of Public Health. Humans in Public Health is a monthly podcast brought to you by Brown University School of Public Health. This episode was produced by Tino Della Merced. I'm Megan Hall. Talk to you next month.